0: I think when you're dealing with more like with the New York Times and some other New York-centric publications, I just get the sense that there's like this kind of a glass ceiling for political cartoons that I'd like to see disappear.
1: People like to share the political cartoons on social media that make them laugh. These are tough times. We all need to laugh. We all need to give political cartoons and political cartoonists the respect they deserve. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Jen Sorensen is a political cartoonist and Pulitzer Prize finalist. You can find her regular cartoon in a number of alternative newspapers across the U.S. and in The Nib, an online daily comics publication focused on political cartoons. Jen is also a friend of the podcast who I just saw in Boulder, Colorado last summer at the Association of Alternative News Media's annual conference. Welcome back to the podcast, Jen. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, we had a really great time in Boulder talking about (laughs) just how much fruit there is for your fodder, I guess, for your craft. There's lots of things to politically satirize, I guess, is the best way to put it.
0: And you get that a lot these days as a political cartoonist, whenever you, uh, you know, someone finds out that's what you do, they're like, oh, we've got a lot of material these days. But sometimes it can feel like a little too much material. You know, it's hard to keep up with the news cycles.
1: Well then then let me ask you the, the really pointed question. What is it like being a female cartoonist in the era of Donald Trump?
0: On the one hand, you know, I feel like you know, a lot of people think maybe I'm I'm getting lots of hate mail and I'm surprised to say that like there isn't quite as much misogynist hate mail as I, I thought there would be. And this may be because I am sort of operating in the alternative media and you know, the media is so fragmented anyway that I think some people just aren't seeing my strip who might react that strongly to it. But the main thing about being a, a female political cartoonist these days, I think, is that it's just the news is so depressing. And, and we are sort of in the midst of this this kind of traditionalist movement that's so antagonistic to women and women's rights that, you know, it's I feel like that part of the story is possibly getting overlooked a little and that women political cartoonists maybe are not, you think there might be a little more attention on on women political cartoonists at a time like this when there doesn't seem to be any more than there has in the past.
1: So you're saying that, you know, you're not getting a ton of necessarily negative feedback, but you still get feedback. What are people telling you?
0: You know, for the most part, I actually get a lot of positive feedback When a strip connects with people, I think they find it very cathartic. You know, the main objection when I do get hate mail is that I think some of the Trump supporters, they don't like being called racist. They really strongly object to the idea that they are racist. And, you know, looking over my hate mail folder, which I do, I do keep one. (laughs) That seems to be the thing that, that people object to the most in my experience.
1: It's this idea of being racist by association, I guess. That well, I'm not actually racist. I just support people who might be considered to be racist.
0: Right. I mean, I, I think they don't understand that just simply by su- supporting Trump and by accepting this rhetoric and everything that he's doing, you know, with immigrants and immigrant children, they don't really see a connection there. You know, liberals are the real racists for noticing race at all. So I get that a right. lot.
1: You know, you mentioned being a female cartoonist and sort of misogyny, etc. You know, are people more open to have conversations about misogyny and, you know, sort of feminist ideas at this time? You know, one of the things I always think about is as sort of stress inducing as these times are, there's so much dialogue going on. A lot of these issues are being talked about. Do you think that there's, you know, people are more receptive for those types of cartoons?
0: Well, I certainly think we've made some progress over the past decade. Like 10 years ago, I started doing cartoons occasionally about representation in media. You know, it just seemed to me like there just weren't enough women being given protagonist roles in Hollywood movies or late night TV seemed to be really dominated by, by men. And when I would point this out 10 years ago or so, it seemed like you know people were like, what? Like they just didn't even really know what I was talking about and now i think we've seen a lot more discussion about representation in media and video games late night tv you know we've got samantha b doing full frontal you know i really i love samantha b i think there's just there's a little more understanding now of that particular issue so i would say on that cultural front we've definitely made some progress but i still feel like there's a lot of subtleties that i feel like i pick up on and You know, there was just a a story the other day on Vox. You know, they did a study of male journalists and who they retweet. And the numbers were staggering, like the disparity between, you know, who gets retweeted by male journalists. You know, it was like something like 90% men. Don't quote me on that figure. But like, there's clearly a case of dudes retweeting other dudes. And so this is something that I've been sort of noticing over the past few years. I think there's these subtle ways in which bias happens that maybe aren't on people's radars quite as much, we're still becoming more conscious of that.
1: Yeah, and I would agree with that. I mean, that's something when we talk about diversity on the podcast that, you know, that kind of comes up in a way that even thinking about what you were just saying, where people, you know, don't want to be called racist. And that may not be sort of looking at themselves and their point of view in a larger context and how it may be affecting other people. And I think we're starting to see a greater discussion around, you know, representation, you know, certainly on like movies and TV, et cetera, but also just, you know, in the newsroom. And it doesn't surprise me the statistic that you quoted that more male journalists are, are retweeting male journalists. I think that's one of those blind spots that we kind of have it, as journalists have in newsrooms. You know, one would hope greater diversity, more women in more management positions, more women throughout the hierarchy, just more awareness of it. You know, people joke about this sort of woke point of view, but I think there's something to it in that people who care about diversity may not recognize their sort of place in sort of the hierarchy. And it's really about the individual sort of becoming more aware of their points of view and, you know, what things in their lives have affected that and then how they communicate with other people, which people they they interact with and then how that may sort of affect everything in their lives, you know, where they work, you know, how they interact with people in the audience or the audience, the people in the office. You know, I'm sort of fascinated how this sort of thinking is emerging and still continuing to sort of royal as people try to figure this out.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's become clear is that. If people don't draw attention to it, then nothing changes. And so when you see people on Twitter pointing this stuff out, I mean yeah, there's always going to be people who take things too far, who are obnoxious about it. you know, even when there are people I agree with, you know, I agree with what they're saying, you know it's never fun to be criticized. But this is the way social progress happens. rather than just dismissing it as people being intolerant, we need to recognize that a lot of this is people responding to a tremendously racist environment, responding to the racism of the Trump administration and you know constant untruths about immigrants or lies, as they're known as. And, uh, you know, people are responding to attacks on civil rights. And so I think you, you need to uh, value the spirit of protest rather than dismiss it as coddled youth on Twitter.
1: So, what do you think about? You know, one of the things that I've been I've been hearing. You know, I listen to different types of podcasts, and some of the podcasts I listen to are are comedy podcasts. This sort of argument that some comedians have that political correctness is is like is trapping them, or, or that it's censoring them. That I need to say this word, or I need to have this point of view for my comedy. You know, I have the right to express that, and then you criticizing me or. You know, doing whatever, protesting these things I say, these attitudes I express are infringing on my job. I mean, what are your thoughts about right.
0: that? Right. Well, I just did a cartoon about this called Right Wing Punk, making fun of the idea that these comedians are in any way being transgressive. I mean, they're really just replicating the status quo of the past, oh, I don't know, 500,000 years. I mean, <laughs> It's like there's really nothing new under the sun here and you know back in the day we used to call them skinheads <laughs> some, I mean some of them so you know I personally have not had any trouble whatsoever I mean yeah, like I said, there's occasionally commenters who I think are oversensitive and interpret things in ways that I think aren't aren't the most accurate interpretation and there's always people on social media who take things too far but I f- Feel that the culture is changing. People are becoming more aware, and this is something that's just happened throughout the civil rights movement. You know, cultural norms have evolved for the better. This is just part of that process.
1: A few years back, I remember Jim Brewer, the comedian, you know, sort of going on and sort of off about talking how he needed, and he's changed his point of view. But he how he needed to to use the f word that would normally be be used to sort of you know, denigrate someone who was, who was gay, but just as a, you know, you know, when I was growing up, that was the way that we referred to, you know, our friends when they were being a certain way or they were, you know, being stupid or whatever. And, you know, he talked for a very long time about how he kind of needed that word, you know, because, Hey, you know, that's, I don't mean it in that negative way, but I think he, his sort of arc was that he eventually sort of recognized that that was using that word was, it was denigrating. It it was disrespecting a part of the of the community, In the end, he kind of decided: Is this the thing I want to go to the mat for? Is this the thing I really want? To, the battle I want to fight? You know how important you know when you think about these cartoons that you're doing, the mixing of the images and in, in the words. How do you you know craft that? How does the idea sort of formulate on the page for you?
0: Well, there's two types of cartoons that I like to do. On the one hand. I'm often just responding to breaking news or, you know, whatever issue everyone is talking about, because it feels like to ignore that issue would somehow be irresponsible or would seem out of touch. And so there's some weeks when I'm just, you know, working right up against deadline, trying to turn the latest Trump outrage or, you know, massive development in the latest scandal or you know, or mass shooting, you know, there'll be like another mass shooting that you almost can't ignore. So in that case, it's just like a scramble to to try to turn this thing, which is often something that you feel like you've, you've addressed a lot before. I mean, it can, it can feel very repetitive. And to try to find some new angle on it, it's almost like the classic desert island gag, you know, how it, in The New Yorker, there's like a running theme of desert island gags that people keep coming up with new angles on, you know, over and over again. And so sometimes it feels a little bit like that. On the other hand, I also like to do cultural commentary. And for those strips, I often have a number of sort of running ideas that I build on organically over time. And, you know, maybe if there's a week when it doesn't feel like there's some incredibly pressing, you know, news item that I need to address, I'll go ahead and and do one of those strips instead. So it's two kind of different processes depending on what kind of strip I'm doing that week.
1: Now, what do you see is kind of the current state of political cartooning in the U S now? I know that when we were in, in Boulder, there were a couple of things that sort of happened that, you know, people were kind of questioning, you know, what's going to happen to political satire political cartoons i mean we've lost mad magazine and the new york times has sort of discontinued its, its cartooning what are your thoughts about that where we're kind of at and what the future holds
0: well it's pretty upsetting and um it's a pretty scary time to be a political cartoonist obviously losing mad magazine was a tragic blow you know i of course grew up reading mad magazine and i managed to get published there once and i was <laughs> hoping to get published there again but i never uh, Didn't really get around to trying very hard after that. But, and then, yeah, like I think the New York Times announcement that they were no longer going to publish political cartoons was extremely upsetting to me. I'm going to recap that story just slightly here for people who haven't heard it before. Basically, there was a controversy over one of their syndicated cartoons, which contained an anti Semitic trope. It made its way into the international edition of the paper. And after that happened, they decided first to cancel all of their syndicated cartoons, which seemed to be a bit of an overreaction. And then a few weeks after that, or maybe it was like a month or two later, they decided to drop Patrick Chappat and I think another independent contractor who were doing regular cartoons for the International New York Times. Again, all this seemed to be kind of an overreaction to this one controversial cartoon that should have been caught by an editor in the first place and seemed as though all of cartoondom is being blamed, you know, for this editing failure. To me, with the New York Times, it seems to be both a matter of cowardice, you know, and being like afraid to publish anything that that might cause controversy, but also I think what's going on here is a, a degree of snobbery. There's an actual bias against political cartoons they're not seen necessarily as a high art form the way say graphic novels and graphic journalism have been elevated somewhat to more of a literary status which is it's ironic because like i feel like my cartoons are out there more than ever in some ways political cartoons are more popular than ever they're being widely shared you know the nib gets a lot of traffic when i go out And do public events, it seems like more and more people are familiar with my work. So I know it's out there and people are reading it and appreciating it. But at the same time, I feel like we're up against this kind of institutional barrier that I think when you're dealing with more like with the New York Times and some other New York-centric publications, I just get the sense that there's like this kind of a glass ceiling for political cartoons that I'd like to see disappear. I, I think that some of the pseudo intellectual columns that get published in the New York Times. I mean, come on, (laughs) there's so many political cartoons that are way smarter than some of the opinion pieces they've been publishing. And so, you know, there's some added insult (laughs) to the, you know, to their decision to not use political cartoons.
1: That sort of cultural snobbery toward graphic storytelling is, is nothing new that's been going on for a long time. But you know, it always seemed that political cartooning had some sort of higher calling. That there was this sort of recognized—I mean, they've been giving you know people surprises for it for years. This idea that you know that was a, a certain like a powerful part of the editorial page, and it does. You know, I agree with you. It seems like cowardice for the for the Times not to, you know, admit. Yeah, this was an editorial mistake, and to say that yeah we're just going to get rid of all cartoons so we don't make that editorial mistake shows a lack of bravery a lack of you know understanding the value of it what do you think you know you kind of alluded to you know some of these other columns you know what is it that political cartoons what can they do do you think what impact can they have that's different than like a text piece or even a photograph for that matter
0: well there's something so immediate and so visceral about the drawn image and also i think there's there's just things you can do with words and pictures. There's just creative opportunities there to imagine. You can go into conceptual places with words and pictures that maybe you can't do as well with a prose column. And I think that in this era of social media where people really respond visually, people respond to images, political cartoons are, I mean, they're perfect for the moment. And there's a lot of great work being done between, I would say, the all weekly cartoonists, the Nib, and Daily co's You know, it really is sort of in the alternative media and in, in this more kind of independent media landscape that you see some of the best work being done. You just don't necessarily get that viral immediacy with a prose column. Now, granted, I mean, there are some, you know, occasional fantastic columns that go viral too. But how long does it take to read a cartoon? Like, maybe 10 seconds for the longer ones. (laughs) They're very efficient delivery mechanisms for for satire.
1: You certainly see it with, you know, sort of the rise of memes, this idea of marrying words and and images to create an effect. You know, that's political cartooning in a different way, or at least, I guess, commentary in a different way. I don't know. There's something about that communication, the way it sort of tickles the different parts of your brain. I like the melding of words and, and imagery. Like a good editorial column, you know, you can see the author, you can see the artist in in the way they think and the way they draw. You look at that image, you, you see the way it's sort of composed and begin to not only recognize their style, but their way of thinking and their perception, their attitude. And I think that's one thing that I, that I, I personally like about political cartoons is this point of view. And, you know, I, that's why I love your stuff. You see your point of view. It's taking, you know, the mundane or the, you know, the obscene, you <laughs> actions of people and then making them funny or putting them in a different context. So suddenly it seems ridiculous. I mean, that's, I mean, where else can you do that in, in a newspaper?
0: Absolutely. People's personalities do shine through. And it's even weirder once you know the people. <laughs> you almost can't, you know, unknow, you know, when you, when you know the person, you see the cartoon, it's like you kind of like there's an added dimension to it you know well you mentioned how you you develop a sense of the person and their whole personality and their their perspective and i guess i do feel like that is something that i try to do with my cartoons in that i don't just want to make jokes about whatever the latest outrage is i actually feel like i have a a set of ideas that I want to communicate. It's more than just about making gags for me, you know, like uh, there's like arguments I want to make. And that's sort of why I like doing the four panel or multi-panel weekly style cartoon, because that lends itself to that kind of commentary. that can be a little more in depth than just like a single panel editorial cartoon.
1: So is there anybody that out there that's doing political cartooning that, that you really like that really you, you think, man, that, you know, that's something great.
0: I've always been a fan of, you know, longtime alt weekly cartoonists like Ruben Bowling, who does Tom the Dancing Bug. I guess he's on Boing Boing now. That's sort of his primary outlet. You know, there's Tom Tomorrow, who's always been a staple of the alt weeklies, Matt Bores, who's on The Nib, and you know, there's a slew of newer women cartoonists out there like I guess Pia Guerra and Chelsea Saunders. There's like people showing up in the Nib now, carrying on this tradition, but not necessarily in newspapers, which is kind of interesting to see.
1: When and where can people usually see your work?
0: (laughs) If you're fortunate enough to be in a city with an alt-weekly that carries my work, I love it when people will post like a photo, they'll take a photo of their local alt-weekly and like put it on Twitter. And that's sort of the ultimate compliment. That's sort of like the new uh, putting a cartoon on the refrigerator if you're not in one of those cities, then I'd say the easiest way to find my work is either on the Nib or Daily Co's. I appear regularly on both of those sites.
1: So we're recording this at the beginning of November, looking towards the end of 2019. What's been, you think the issue, the story, the, the subject that you've really been latching onto in this year?
0: Huh? This year, Well, I guess what's on my mind a lot these days is the 2020 elections, and I'm very worried about the increasing um, creep of authoritarianism and the loss of democratic norms. So I guess if I had to identify one theme that keeps coming back, it's the sense that we're not operating under normal circumstances, and these are not normal times, the 2020 election may be compromised in a variety of ways. I mean, they're still doing voter purges in Georgia and election security has not been adequately funded. You've got some of the the disinformation issues that we saw in 2016 are coming back with a vengeance in 2020. You know, you've seen Facebook being even a worse actor, I think in some ways now than they were then. And, and so this combination of elements... Combined with, you know, Trump's rhetoric, if it is a really close election, is he going to step down? Is he going to uh, accept the accept the vote? A lot of people want to pretend that this is a normal election like we've had in the past, but I think the situation is rapidly changing, and and I'm a little I'm a little worried about the U.S. becoming more like Hungary, sort of an autocracy posing as a democracy.
1: Yeah, and this was actually the subject of a lot of what we talked about when we were in Boulder. We were like two radicals sitting at this table just trying to scare scare each other with these crazy ideas and conspiracies. But, you know, the thing is, you know, you got to figure out how to live and how to think and how to thrive. You know, I I kind of agree with you about the election. You're kind of like the, the kid whose parents are having a rocky marriage. You just hope it all holds together. We're journalists. I'm throwing. I'm including you in as a political cartoonist, as a journalist as well. We, we're optimists. We have to find some something positive in going in. And I think by what you do, the way you satirize, the way you poke fun, and you you put things in a different context, so people can see them differently. I think that that's that's a hugely positive thing to do. I remember. I think one of the things you said when we were talking in Boulder was that people would write to you. You know, we talked about negative feedback, but the positive feedback, people who are like, you know, thank you for doing this or thank you for talking about this. Tell me some of the positive things people have said to you.
0: It does feel sometimes like I'm doing a public service. People really need to hear that they're not alone. They need to hear that uh, there are people out there still making sense and relying on, I think, ethical journalism and responsible journalism to arrive at conclusions. There's been such a a breakdown in terms of the media that people consume, and people are so fragmented that, you know, you you can start to feel a little gaslit, like all of reality itself has been turned upside down. And so I think people are a little extra grateful these days to see someone else who's processing the news in in hopefully a a rational and uh, ethical way, you know. And people need to laugh, too, of course. So it it does feel like there's, you know almost a you know, a bit of a higher purpose, you know, drawing the cartoon these days, even though you know I'm not necessarily under any delusions about drastically changing the political landscape. But one anecdote I like to to tell when I'm asked about this is people ask about preaching to the choir. You know I have been told by a couple people that i I've radicalized their teenage daughters so I think you know it's, it's easy to uh forget I mean there is there is like a younger generation out there too that's reading our cartoons and I think for some people it is it can still be somewhat educational you know people are still open-minded they're still making decisions about the world and, and learning about politics so I feel like that's also kind of a a higher calling
1: Jen thanks for coming on the podcast again I wish you luck thanks so much You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? you get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Amelia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.